morning, we are back in Mark's Gospel for our series, Our Servant King. Uh, back there this week, next week, uh, we're going out of that again for Advent as we take a, open a new series called Jesus Changes Everything as we look at uh, the hope, joy, love, and peace that we have in Christ and that we celebrate each year together as a church family during the season of Advent. But this morning, we're in Mark chapter 10, verses 46 to 52. So I'll read that text for us today. Uh, if you have it in front of you, you can follow along. If not, it'll be on the screen behind me. Uh, but in Mark chapter 10, we'll pick up in verse 46 and read down through verse 52 together. And the text reads, And they came to Jericho. And he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd. And Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is God's Word. You know, at the end of World War II, the United States dropped two atomic uh, bombs on the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan, which many say helped expedite the end of that war. And whenever those bombs fell from the planes that flew over those two cities, uh, the blast radius from those bombs, though it was contained largely within the city centers, the fallout from those bombs spread all throughout the countryside and affected not only that generation of individuals who was alive during that time, but also the subsequent generation that would come after them as well. And church, I want you to know that thousands of years ago, there was an even more powerful bomb, a cosmic bomb that exploded, not in the midst of a city center, but in the middle of a garden. And whenever sin entered into the world, our first parents betrayed the relationship they had with God, the God who had formed them and made them. That explosion not only affected our first parents, but it affected every generation that has lived on the face of the earth since. As a result, those of us who are living what we might say is east of Eden know what it is to live in a fallen and fractured world that's full of brokenness. A world that's filled with heartache and homelessness. A world that, in which wayward children and wanton cruelty are experienced on a daily basis. A world where abuse is seen both in the words that we speak and the touches that we experience. And both of them leave deep, deep wounds in our lives. A world where families are ripped apart by divorce and death. A world where the poor are marginalized. Money and celebrity are mainstream. And those in the middle do what they can oftentimes in very harmful and destructive ways to move up in society. It's a world that's not whole. It's a world that is broken and fractured from what we might call the fallout of the fall. That's the world in which we live. And all of us have looked for a remedy in some capacity, some way, shape, or form. Every self-help book that is written on the shelves of bookstores or in uh, a, a virtual reading devices has some kind of remedy for the fallout of the fall. 
asking the question, how can what is broken be made beautiful? How can what is wrong be set right in this fractured world, put back together and healed? And the Bible gives a resounding answer over and over again, and it's not principles, and it's not policies, and it's not politics, but it's a person. And His name is Jesus. And in our text this morning, we see Him do this very thing for a blind man named Bartimaeus. And listen, church, I want you to know that He's able to do the same for you. He's able to do the same for me. He's able to do the same for us. And if He's to do the same for us, the same thing that He does for Bartimaeus, we have to first know who He is. Second, we have to see how He acts. And third, we have to trust Him to do what only He is able to do. So that's what I want to take us through this morning. I want us to see how God is able to put back together all the pieces of the fracturedness of life. And listen, for some of you, as I read through some of these things this morning, you're like, that's the world in which I live. It's around me, but it's also in the very walls of my home. It's in my family. It's in my relationships. It's in all my experiences. And if that's you, I want you to know that God is able to remedy that through the person of Jesus Christ. If you would see who He is, if you would know how He acts, and you would trust Him to do what only He can do. So who is He? First and foremost, this is who He is, the text teaches us. And if we're going to come to understand who He is, we have to marvel at His identity. Marvel at His identity. To marvel at something means to be in awe or amazed, right? It's unable at times to believe our own eyes, right? Our eyes seem to be deceiving us. And this might be why when Stan Lee created a series of comic book characters back in the day, he called it Marvel Comics because all these superheroes with all their superpowers seem beyond the realm of belief, right? Our eyes seem to be playing tricks on us. We stand amazed or at awe at what they're able to do, particularly as those comic book characters came to life on the, on the, on, in, in, in the cinematic production of some of those classic characters and we see the things that, 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 that science fiction once dreamed about about kind of unfolding before our eyes on the big screen, right? We stand amazed at that. That's what it is to marvel at something. And I think there's at least four markers of Jesus' messianic identity that are in this text that Mark wants us to marvel at ourselves, to be amazed by, to stand in awe of. And I want to give you these four. The first one is this. It's in verse 47, verses 47 and 48 in the text when Bartimaeus is he's seated on the side of the road as Jesus passes by, and yet he calls out to him. And he calls out to him and he says, Jesus, and he calls him this, Son of David. Now the crowd that's traveling with Jesus, Jesus has an entourage that he's moving with toward Jerusalem. He knows where he's going and he knows why he's going there and their disciples are following him and there's a great crowd surrounding him and they look over at Bartimaeus, this blind beggar in the ditch and they say, shut up, man, right? Stop talking. They try to silence him and yet he cries out all the louder, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, why does Bartimaeus call Jesus the son of David? In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a promise to a guy named David, one of the great kings that we read about in the Old Testament, uh, makes a promise to King David that one of his descendants, one of his offspring, would rule on the throne over God's people forever. David has this great idea. David says, I live in a palace. God, you live in a tent. So let me build you a temple. 
And so he's going to build this massive structure that is going to be ornate in its construction. And God says, no, hold up. I didn't ask you to do that. In fact, your son's going to do that for me, right? Instead of you. But he's going to be a king. He's going to rule and reign. He's going to have wisdom. And there's going to be one of his offspring, one of his descendants, which would be one of your descendants. So one of your grandchildren and great-grandchildren, one of your sons, 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 who's going to be on the throne of Israel for Forever. Forever. And then in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, we read these words, There shall come forth from a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Who was Jesse? He was this guy, David's father. Okay? The stump of Jesse, a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And we're told in Isaiah 11 that this branch that comes out of the stump of Jesse will be one upon whom the Spirit of the Lord would rest. We're told that he would judge, not by the standards of what he hears or sees, but with righteousness and equity. We're told that he would be a signal for all the peoples of the earth and that his resting place would be glorious. This is what we're told about this branch coming out of the stump of Jesse, right? The house of Jesse, which was in the, who, who was the father father of David, who would, who would ultimately be the one upon whom the Spirit of the Lord rests. And so when Bartimaeus calls out Jesus, son of David, all of this is caught up in that designation. Jesus, son of David, I believe you to be the promised king. The one who has come to rule. The offspring of David who would rule forever. I believe you to be the branch that's coming out of Jesse's stump on whom the Spirit of God would rest, He would judge in righteousness and equity, right? and who would be a sign for all the peoples of the earth. He says, this is who I believe you to be. And up to this point, listen, this is, so, this is, this is marvelous. Up to this point in Mark's Gospel, every time someone has recognized the identity of Jesus, what has Jesus done to them? He's gone, shh. Right? Don't go tell anyone. Keep it silent. This messianic secret that the scholars would refer to, Jesus orders everyone who recognized who He was to be silent. And yet here, as He makes His way toward Jerusalem, He doesn't try to silence Bartimaeus. He doesn't correct Bartimaeus. Rather, He just receives what Bartimaeus has to say about Him and gives His stamp of approval to it. Yes, I am He. First marker. Second marker of Jesus' messianic identity here that I think Mark wants us to marvel at is in verse 51. Another way in which Bartimaeus addresses Jesus. He calls him with a very reverent reverent designation. Now listen, our English texts translate it rabbi, but the Greek word is actually the word rabboni. And in Jewish literature, this particular expression is, is rarely if ever found in reference to mere men and never as a form of address to them. Okay, so in the Jewish world, you didn't use that particular expression to address another man, man teacher, another human teacher. Okay, and particularly to address them, it's used frequently to address God in prayer. This particular expression. And it's used here by Bartimaeus to give us an indication of who Bartimaeus esteems Jesus to be and who Mark is trying to show us that he is. That he is God in the flesh. He's no mere man as the very language that's used to petition God in prayer comes off of Bartimaeus' lips as he asks Jesus to do something for him. 
Marker number two. Marker number three is in verse 47. Listen, it's noteworthy to consider the fact that in Mark's Gospel, when Jesus performs His first miracle, in Mark chapter 1, verse 24, whenever He heals a man in the synagogue who was possessed by demons, and here in the last miracle in Mark's Gospel account, where Jesus restores sight to the blind Bartimaeus, Jesus is referred to as Jesus the Nazarene. The Nazarene. Now, look, I know that may not be what your English text says, and not what my English text says either, okay? But the word here is not Nazareth, but Nazarene, okay? Now, I know you might be thinking, what's the difference, right? That's like saying Tom the Texan or Tom of Texas, right? Isn't that, isn't that what we're talking about here? But listen, I want you to consider one other place where this word shows up in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And that's in Judges chapter 16, verse 17, where we see this word used here in reference to a guy named Samson. Samson was one of the judges, one of the military leaders in Israel's history. That during the era in which they had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, as a result, they found themselves in this cycle of rebellion, sin, judgment, restoration. And every time Israel would find themselves under the, the oppression of a foreign nation, God would raise up a judge to come in and vanquish that foreign nation and restore Israel to its autonomy and independence. Samson was one of those guys. And Samson says in Judges chapter 16, verse 17, that he was consecrated or devoted to the Lord from his mother's womb. Right? That he had taken this Nazarite vow. And part of that vow was that he would not cut his head. Now he reveals that to his lady friend uh, in the text in Judges 16, right? As the Philistines try to get an upper hand on him and eventually do. Now, Samson was a powerful judge, perhaps one of the most powerful judges in Israel's history, fallen though he was. All right, messed up though he was, he was powerfully anointed by God for Israel's deliverance. And so when that same designation, Samson the Nazarene, in the Old Testament, judge, uh, the, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, shows up here to refer to Jesus in these two places where Jesus' power is put on display to cast out demons and to restore sight to the blind, I believe Mark is using this expression to point to the fact that like Samson, Jesus was powerfully anointed by God to heal and deliver His people. Marker number three. Marker number four in this text. Look what Jesus does for Bartimaeus. He restores his sight. Now throughout the Old Testament, this was, this was something that was caught up in the theme of God coming to deliver and rescue and judge. Consider this, in Psalm 146 we read these words, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob whose hope is in the Lord, his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked 
He brings to ruin. The author of the psalm says this, Don't put your trust in mortal men who cannot save, but hope in the Lord Himself. Because it is the Lord who made everything. The Lord who executes justice. The Lord who gives food. The Lord who sets free. The Lord who lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord who loves the righteous, watches over the sojourners, upholds the widow and fatherless, brings the wicked to ruin, and what? Opens the eyes of the blind. It is the Lord Himself. Himself who does this. It's no mere mortal who opens the, Lord, the eyes of the blind. It is the Lord God maker of heaven and earth. But we're not done. In Isaiah 35, I want you to hear the words of the prophet Isaiah as he speaks about a day from his perspective that is to come in the future. And listen to what he says in verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water in the haunt of jackals where they lie down. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. Isaiah is prophesying about a day in which God would come to judge and to save. Both and. And he says, on that day, there'll be streams in the desert, fountains in the wilderness, hot, dry sand will become pools, thirsty ground will bubble over with fountains of water, the grasslands where the jackals lie down will become marshlands full of reeds and rushes. He says, also on that day, the deaf will hear, the mute will sing, the lame will leap, and the eyes of the blind shall be opened when God comes to save. Still not done. In Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist has been imprisoned by Herod and he sends some of his disciples to Jesus to ask him this question, are you the one we're waiting for or should we wait for another? And Jesus seems to give a pretty cryptic response unless you know Isaiah 35 because Jesus says, here, go back to John and tell him this. Tell him what you see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have the good news preached to them. What does he say? What Isaiah prophesied about in Isaiah 35 is happening now here through me. Here in Mark 10, you have a blind man calling out to the Davidic king who is powerfully anointed by God for the healing and deliverance of his people and addressing him as one would only address God in petitionary prayer to receive his sight. And God, Jesus, causes him to see. These four markers of his messianic identity are something at which we are to, Mark intends us to marvel, to be amazed by as we consider who this man is. And listen, church, I'm here to tell you this morning that whenever it comes to the identity of Jesus, we can either receive Him or we can reject Him, but there is no third alternative. Okay? Listen, I know many of us are familiar with social media, and you can go on social media, and there's all these little like buttons, right? And little hearts and emojis that you can leave everywhere. But listen, when it comes to Jesus' Facebook page, there is no like button. It is either love or or loathe one of the two 
There is no third middle ground where we can say, I kind of like Jesus and some of his teaching, right? But I'm not going to yield and submit my life to him and see him as my king who rules over me as the only source of healing for my life. But I'm going to find it somewhere else. And I, I, will, I will give myself to the things that I like when I like what he says, but the things that I don't like, I'm, I'm going to do my own thing there. Like, that is not an alternative that Jesus gives us. He says, either it is, it is love or it is loathe. Receive and order your life around him and submit your life to him or reject and rebel against him. Those are the only two alternatives. And my hope would be that as we see the identity of Jesus on the pages of Scripture this morning, that we would stand in awe. They would be amazed. We, our hearts would be captivated and inflamed. We would say, just as we sung earlier, that we want more of Him. We want to yield more to Him. So listen, if He is going to be the one who puts our fractured lives back together, we have to recognize who He is. That He's the anointed Messiah of God. And that there is no other for whom we are waiting other than His second coming. You with me? So not, but not only do we need to know who He is, but also how He acts. And listen, church, in this text, I want you to see that just like Bartimaeus, we are able to experience His compassion. His compassion. The compassion of Jesus is set on display for us here in Mark chapter 10. In verse 48, we're told that there were many who were traveling with Jesus who rebuked Bartimaeus, right? They said, man, man we're, we're tired of hearing you, bro. Like, Stop it. Okay? However, in verse 49, we're told that whenever Jesus, when the voice of Bartimaeus pierces through the crowd because he cried louder and louder, that Jesus stopped. In fact, the Greek literally says this, as Jesus was taking a step, he stood still. And what does he do? He says, call him. Bring him to me. So in the midst of marching to Zion, right? moving toward Jerusalem, and all that awaited for him there. Right? Jesus knows where he's going. He knows what awaits him. He knows what's about to take place. And yet he stops as he hears the voice of one who recognizes his true identity and is calling out to him for mercy. That's what he's asking for, church. When he says, Jesus, Son of David, what does he say? Have mercy on me. Would, would you, would your heart be moved toward me and toward my position and toward my condition, Jesus. And it stops Jesus in His tracks. In verse 51, when Bartimaeus approaches Jesus, Jesus asks him a question that on the surface seems rather self-evident, doesn't it? What do you want me to do for you, Bartimaeus? Duh. <laughs> right? I'm blind. I need to see Jesus. And yet Jesus asks him the question because Jesus does not treat Bartimaeus mechanically or transactionally, but humanely. He wants Bartimaeus to articulate through the, the, the lens of faith that his eyes can't see, but his heart can, what he believes that this son of David is able to do for him in bestowing his mercy upon him. And so he allows him to express it for himself. Which is so different from us oftentimes, isn't it? So often we look at someone and we assume we know what they need based upon what we see. Anybody else guilty of that? I know I am. Right? We assume we know what they need. Oh, right? 
You lost your job. You must need money. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. Right? You, you, your, your spouse died. Right? We assume what they need. Right? It, we, they need kind of glib responses. Right? We assume what people need, but Jesus doesn't assume that. He asks the man, even though Jesus already knows. He wants the man to articulate what he wants Jesus to do for him. And then notice Bartimaeus' position at the beginning of the story and the end of the story. At the beginning of the story, where is he? In the, in the ditch. On the roadside. Where is he at the end of the story? On the way. He's now on the road, in the crowd. Previously, he finds himself to be marginalized and outcast on the fringes of society, a drain on the system. And yet, because Jesus, out of compassion, is moved towards this man, at the end of the story, he finds himself no longer on the fringes, but welcomed in by the very King of creation. And listen, church, anyone who's had an encounter with this one at whose identity we would marvel, I want you to know that whether you were socially an outcast, whether you were financially an outcast, whether you were, right, economically an outcast, whether you were relationally out, you spiritually were an outcast. You were in the ditch and Jesus, Jesus stopped in His tracks. And He welcomed you in. See, we are able to experience that same compassion of Jesus in our own lives. When we cry out to Him, Jesus, would You have mercy on me? Jesus, would You do for me what I am not able to do for myself? Bartimaeus could not restore his own sight. Now, you would imagine in his day, he would have gone to every physician tried every salve, every cream, every cure, and nothing would seem to alleviate His blindness. And yet with the very words of Jesus, He says, your faith has made you well. You believed that I am who I am. And the man rises out of the ditch and now he's a part of this community of believers who's moving toward Jerusalem, following Jesus along the way. It's exactly what Jesus does when He folds us into His family. He takes us from being outcast and makes us into His children. But not only do we need to know how He acts, finally, listen church, we need to know what He's able to do and trust Him with it. I want you to see something in the text that we have to trust Jesus to make us whole. To make us whole. Now I want you to consider something with me. In the previous passage, Jesus asked those coming to Him, what do you want me to do for you? You remember that? A couple of weeks ago? James and John, the sons of thunder. Right? They come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, listen man, we have something we want you to do for us. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, Jesus, whenever you come to wreck shop and your kingdom comes in all of its fullness, we want to sit at your right and your left positions of privilege and esteem and greatness and glory and honor. That's what we want from you, Jesus. 
So you might say whenever James, Jesus asked James and John this very same question, they asked Jesus for extraordinary honor. But whenever Jesus looks at Bartimaeus and he says, what do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus recognizes out of his brokenness and he asks Jesus not for extraordinary honor, but for extraordinary healing. Because Bartimaeus' life was fractured and broken. He was blind. He was an outcast. He was on the fringes. He was marginalized. And he says, Jesus, I need you to heal me. As one commentator, commentator put it, he said, These, Jesus, uh, Bartimaeus asked not to be superhuman, but just simply human. Not superhuman with superpowers, super honor, super glory, super greatness, but simply human to be made whole. And in restoring his sight, Jesus makes him such. But the means by which Jesus says he's made whole is his faith, church. Now listen. He really believes Jesus, God in the flesh, powerfully and anointed, is able to make him whole that He's able to take Him in His brokenness from the fallout of the fall and make something beautiful out of His life. And I want you to know, God has been doing that same thing throughout history. Hmm. If I only had time. We got a little bit of it, so I'm going to give you a little. In Psalm 147, verse 3, we're told that He, God, heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. In Joel chapter 2, verses 24 to 25, I find this amazing that Joel prophesies about the restoration of Israel. God's raised up four nations, brought them in, sent plagues, all kinds of things have happened because of Israel's rebellion and disobedience. But Joel prophesies about a day in which God will restore their fortunes. And listen to what he says. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vat shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. I've disciplined you, Israel, because of your sin, and yet there's a day that's coming in which I will restore to you everything that you've lost. Everything that you have lost. Not only the crops that were consumed, the buildings that were burned to the ground, but also the years that were taken away from you. So that whenever you get to the end of the book of Job, Job knows something about what it was to have life stripped away from him and to be empty. And yet at the end of Job, the very final verse in Job chapter 42, we read that Job lived and died an old man full. Full. That God restored everything that had been lost. And then some. But perhaps the best illustration of this comes in the life of a woman named Naomi whose story is recorded in the book of Ruth. Now I preached a series of sermons. I, I would love to preach all those sermons again this morning. But we would be here for a while. So go back and listen to them. Alright? They're somewhere in the archives, I think. But Ruth, let me tell you the story of Naomi. In the story of Naomi and Ruth, in chapter 1, we meet Naomi. 
And Naomi is married to a guy named Elimelech. And there's a famine that strikes the land of, of Israel, the land of Judah, and the city of Bethlehem, which is the house of bread. That's what Bethlehem literally means, the house of bread. In the house of bread, there is no bread. Irony in the story, right? A famine strikes the land. Elimelech decides, rather than repenting of sin and trusting God in the land of promise, I'm going to take my family and run from Israel's sin and try to plant my life in a foreign land, a pagan land, rather than the land of promise. He goes there in search of agricultural and economic prosperity. And no sooner than they arrive in the land of Moab, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. Which, by the way, his name means my God is king. And he lives as if God, some, somebody or something else is king, right? There's all kinds of irony in the names in this story. Now, that leaves Naomi a widow with her two sons in Moab. And about a decade later, as her sons grow up, they marry two Moabite girls, Ruth and Orpah which, by the way, was forbidden by God's law. And after that time in Moab, her sons die, leaving her without provision or protection in the present or her hope for the future because she would have no offspring to care for her in her old age. But then God visits Bethlehem, restores the crops and grain. And Naomi somehow in the fields of Moab hears about this and she decides she's going to return home to her family's house. And so she tries to convince her two young daughters-in-law, go home to your father's house. I have nothing for you. He says, even if I conceive today, right, and, <laughs> right, and you were to wait for my, my, uh, my sons to grow and become of marriage age, right, you're going to be old and barren by that time. So go home, find yourself a husband, start a new family, right? You're released from any responsibility to me. One does, the other does not. Orpah goes back to her family, back to her fathers, back to her gods, and Ruth clings to Naomi and returns with her to Bethlehem. When Ruth and Naomi arrive back in Bethlehem, she tells the women of the city who come out to greet her, do not call me Naomi anymore. Naomi meant pleasant one. But call me Mara, which meant bitter, because the Lord has dealt with me bitterly. She said, I went away full, and God returned me empty. Chapter 1. Chapter 2. The women have a problem. They have no food and no family. So Ruth determines she's going to go out and glean in the fields to provide food. And in the process, she happens upon the field of a guy named Boaz, who was a worthy man from the clan of Naomi's deceased husband, one of Elimelech's kin. And Boaz is gracious to Ruth. He provides for her, protects her, welcomes her to his table, serves her, and she goes home with a super abundant provision of grain for herself and her mother-in-law. And so when she arrives back at home at the end of a long day's worth of work, Naomi says to Ruth, where did you go, my daughter? In whose field did you work? Whose eyes did you find favor? And she's like, I don't know, some guy named Boaz. And Naomi goes, Boaz? She knows that Boaz is one of Elimelech's kin and could be a kinsman redeemer for them. 
And so she breaks out into blessing and instructs Ruth, do not go anywhere else, my daughter. Stay close to his workers. Stay in his fields. And the chapter closes with the barley and wheat harvest coming to an end. And chapter 3 opens with Naomi seeking to secure rest for Ruth in the house of a husband. And she goes about it with a little questionable counsel. All right, When you're giving dating advice, do not go to Ruth chapter 3. Okay? And yet Ruth follows the majority of her counsel, so she finds herself at the threshing floor as they're threshing out the grain that has come in from the fields at midnight, and she goes and lies down next to Boaz, and whenever he is startled in the middle of the night and awakens, she says, spread your wings over me, for you are a kinsman redeemer. In other words, redeem me and Naomi out of the situation in which we find ourselves. And Boaz agrees that night to fulfill the heart and intent of the law, even though he was not bound by the letter, listen, bound by the letter of the law. And yet he wanted to move forward in accordance with the law. And so he tells Ruth, he says, listen, I, my, my full intent is to redeem you and your family's land. But there is one who sits in the first position to redeem, and it's not me. And if I'm going to do this by the book, I've got to make him aware of the situation. So he says, be patient, be patient. And if he will act as the extension of God's wings to protect you and your mother-in-law, so be it. But if not, I will fulfill it. So in chapter four, the last chapter, by the way, in case you're counting the time. In chapter four, Boaz shows up to the city gate. Now, the city gate in the ancient world was where all the business was transacted, where deals went down, the elders made decisions, and judgments took place. And Boaz, when he walks to the city gate, the man in the first position happens to walk by. And so Mr. Boaz calls out to Mr. What's-His-Face, right? He's not given a name in the text. And here's why, right? Because Mr. What's-His-Face, right, his name is lost to history. He has no legacy. But we know who Boaz was. So he speaks with this man and tells him, hey, listen, there's land belonging to one of our kinsmen, Elimelech, that needs to be redeemed. The man, Mr. What's-His-Face agrees to redeem the land, and as soon as he agrees to redeem the land, Boaz goes, oh yeah, I forgot to tell you, there's a lady involved in this too. Because whoever redeems the land should also take the lady and raise up, raise up children in our deceased family member's place. And Mr. What's-His-Face says, no thanks. All right? I've got enough kids of my own. And so his name is lost to history, and Boaz has a rich legacy. Richer than you could, he could ever even imagine. And so he declines. Boaz then declares in the presence of the elders and the people who had gathered to see what was going on there that he acquired the land and the lady for the purpose of raising up offspring in the dead man's name. And bringing the land back into the family. Now in chapter 4, when the women who are there, because after that there's a great big wedding, they get married, Ruth conceives, she bears a child, a son is born to Ruth. And when the women of the town see what has taken place, listen to what they say. In verse 14 of Ruth 4, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. She's not speaking to Ruth. She's speaking to who? Naomi. He's not left you without a Redeemer. 
And may His name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to Him. Then in verse 17, they give the child a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. Now listen, you're like, what? I thought it was born to Ruth. But listen, the way that the family unit worked in the ancient world, they lived in such close proximity, like compounds of three to four generations living together. And because of the nature of the marriage between Boaz and Ruth, the child is now seen as filling up what was emptied out of Naomi in Moab. She lost her son Malon, and now she has Obed, whose name ironically means servant, that he would serve her well in her old age. Now the text tells us she holds him close and he became for her like a nanny. So that in a world previously characterized by famine and sterility and death, there was now fruitfulness, birth, and life. And the women clarify how this child would serve her in her old age. They say he would be a restorer of you to you of life. Now that word restore in the English, our English translation is literally in the Hebrew returner. So Naomi returns from Moab empty, and in chapter 4, God returns to her fullness in the birth of this child. And the women clarify how it came to be for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Listen, this is what these women are saying. Your little broken and blended family is better than the perfect Israelite family. Seven sons. This daughter-in-law is better than that because of her kindness, her said, her loyal love towards you. Things have come full circle in Naomi's life as, as, as that which was emptied of, of her in Moab, God has filled in Bethlehem. Don't you see, church? God has been returning wholeness to those who are broken and fractured by the fallout of the fall all throughout history. He's been making people whole. And Jesus says to Bartimaeus, your faith, your faith has healed you. Now let me be real clear as we close this morning. This is not a name it, claim it, blab it, grab it, call it, haul it kind of message. Okay? And let me tell you why. In those prosperity circles, the question would be followed by a list of, like, what do you want me to do for you? It would be followed by a list of physical and financial things that we wanted God to do for us. And there is nothing wrong with petitioning God for health and for financial provision. But in those circles, oftentimes, there is the lack of recognition of what Bartimaeus does after he gets made whole. What does he do? He doesn't, listen, he doesn't go away and say, look at what I've got. But he follows Jesus along the way, pointing to the one who gave it to him. That's what he does. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him. So listen, church, let me ask you a question this morning in closing. What do you want him to do for you? What brokenness in your life do you want Him to heal? What fractures do you want Him to make whole?
And do you believe that he can? This is who he is. Stand amazed. This is how he acts. Moving toward the broken, needy, the poor, out of compassion and care in order to make them whole. What do you want Him to do for you? Let's pray together. Father, this morning, I pray that that question that Jesus asked James and John and that question that Jesus, your son asked to Bartimaeus would, would echo in our minds. And Father, if there is freedom from addiction that is needed, I pray that we would trust You to make us whole. Father, if there is physical healing that we are petitioning You for, I pray we would trust You to make us whole. And Father, even as we saw last week, that doesn't always come with the deliverance from death, but deliverance through it. And that whether we ever know what wholeness is this side of eternity, we will know it for all of eternity as we place our faith in Jesus. Father, whatever sin has ransacked and destroyed and eroded and burned up in our lives, God, may we trust Your Son to make it whole. The One upon whom Your Spirit rests who's powerfully anointed to heal and deliver. May we trust Him to make us whole. May we believe that He has the power and the compassion to do it. We pray it in Christ's name.